This is part B of episode 6, interview with John Palmer from the Invest for the Future YouTube channel. We now talk further about stocks and other investments. Perfect, perfect. Well, I think now let's do one thing. Let's move on to the the next segment. I think we'll combine the two just because in terms of stocks and other investments, you know, sure. coming in from, you know, moving on, as I said, from the personal finance space. Let's start off with, you know, something which is always very, I wouldn't say controversial, but I think it, it always uh, stirs, it up, stirs up a debate is the thought on property versus shares. You know, I remember during one of your early videos where you had shared your property investment experience and had mentioned that you would have done things a bit differently if you had to do it all over again. I think that was somewhere around, I guess, uh, the early parts of 2019. Yes. Now, like now we're in 2021, have those views changed, keeping in mind where the interest rates are at the moment? We're in an overinflated market in terms of, you know, the stock and the share market and, and an economy which basically is rebounding post the pandemic, right? So any changes in your views regarding that? Not really. I mean, right now, probably many assets are overvalued or appear overvalued, but I always look at it and thinking, well, at least for several years, I just can't see interest rates changing very much at all. And so houses are going to continue to remain expensive. Shares are going to be expensive. You know, trying to get a return from investments, you're going to need to be taking some sort of risk, I think. You know, you're just not going to be able to get it from long-term bonds or, uh, well, I don't really understand enough about how bonds work, to be honest, but Certainly from term deposits, you're just not going to make the grade. So, look, you know, I'd still buy a house now. In fact, with interest rates down here at 2%, you know, so long as uh, they don't suddenly shoot to 4% or something, that might be a bit of a tricky uh, situation. But I'd still buy the house now if I were able to afford it. But I'd be also taking a, a very long look at what my repayments might be if the interest rates were to rise in other words, we'd buy well within our means. Here we go again. <laughs> and then start building up that emergency buffer because those interest rates actually might go up. So, mm. you know, the banks are supposed to be you know, not over lending for want of a better way of putting it. But mm. I don't know whether that, that's the case or not. I don't have any evidence to say that they're, they're lending out too much money to people who might not be able to pay it off but mm -hmm. but you know i'd just be doing that and i'll be putting the the spare cash back into the uh the stock market over time knowing that i'll be able to access it if i need it and, and i guess that's the main reason for me not going down the path of building up a a property portfolio you know when i said i'd do it differently again mm -hmm. what i would do different is I would not have bought the house that we currently own. You know, I, I, I did the maths on it based on perfection, mm -hmm. and perfection didn't happen in the terms of deciding to start a family. So, you know, we were forced sellers. Now, you know, whether I actually – I did well out of the property. Don't get me wrong, I did well out of it. But, um, you know, had we bought uh, a house for maybe two-thirds the value of what we paid for this one, Mm -hmm. uh, we would not have had to have sold the investment property and uh, and it might be a totally different story now. Mm. Um, I might have an investment portfolio of uh, properties that were well-priced for investment, not necessarily well-priced to be a place to live in because okay. there's a bit of a difference between the two. Correct. Um, so, you know, right now I just, I just like the idea that, uh, by being invested in um, an asset like a, an equity, I can sell a bit of it if mm -hmm. I need to, mm -hmm. whereas I can't sell a bit of a house. So, you know, and, and apart from that, I don't have to leverage it. Uh, and in fact, I think investing in property only becomes, you can call it effective, if you are in a leveraged position, you know. Mm. some Someone is not going to, well... I guess you can in in Sydney and Melbourne. I mean, you guys wouldn't, I guess, know what the market is like in Melbourne. But you know, if you happen to have a Overpriced. lazy five hundred, <laughs> <laughs> if you happen to have a lazy five hundred thousand or six hundred thousand dollars in cash, you know, would you go and buy a house with it, mm. or would you put a hundred thousand dollars into the house and borrow, and then put the rest of the money into the stock market? 
I don't I don't know what the answer to that question is, but personally you know, I an, choose option two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah even I, I think option two was quite appealing over option one. <laughs> yeah, well look, you know, I guess if you've got like half a million dollars in cash and you buy a house and it doesn't appreciate in value, mm. then you're going to get a return of about three or four percent on your money because of the the rent that you're getting minus the the cost of running the property. So, you know, you're definitely relying on that capital growth, which is clearly there in mm. Melbourne and Sydney. But like where I live, the the average increase in the house price or the median increase in house price in my suburb over the last 10 years has been about 1.8% per year. Oh, so. Okay. And and just for context for people listening, John is in Adelaide, so we're talking the yes, Adelaide. Yes, I'm living. I'm market. living uh, 40 kilometres north of Adelaide um, mm. in a well, I call it a suburb of a town called Gawler. So, but look, you know, I actually just uh, did a, a bit of quick uh, review of where I had been living in during my life <laughs> mm. <laughs> to see what uh, what house prices were doing. I think the biggest annual gain over the last 10 years is about. 2.9% across about nine suburbs. So, no. yeah. so you know, it's nothing like what's happening on the eastern seaboard over here in uh, South Australia. Hmm. All right. Yeah. So, uh, well, we got off track there a bit, did we? <laughs> <laughs> That's all good, John. All good. So we hear a lot about active and passive investing strategies, um, particularly more around uh, stock market investing. And Jude and I did a podcast recently about the two strategies so as far as I can tell with your investing style, it's a little bit more of an active approach. Just wanted to ask, was this always the case? Like when you were working, did you do this approach or was it only later on in life that you had this active style of investing? Well, look, you know, I think many people would probably view passive investing as like dollar cost averaging into maybe a group of ETFs or something like that and and then trusting them to do their thing over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I'm actually warming to that idea, to be perfectly honest, and I will be rebalancing my portfolio in about two weeks' time from now, and I am I am going to be including some ETFs uh, within that. So I'll be selling some of my stocks, one, because I have to, because they don't meet my metrics anymore, uh, and then the others I will pare down their actual size within the portfolio and then go into some ETFs. But I won't be dollar cost averaging in. It'll sort of like be saying, okay, it's all going to go in now. At least that's my thought. But mm-hmm. having, you know, after this conversation, I might <laughs> I might, I might <laughs> review that. But the, the ETFs wouldn't be broad market ones. They're going to be a bit more targeted mm. rather than just sort of going into something like, you know, VAS or STW in Australia or what is it, IVV, is it? IVV, yeah. Although, you know, if you ask me, you know, clearly IVV has been a better performer than either of the two Aussie ones, but mm. no guarantee that will happen in the future either. Correct. Um, but, look, you know, while I was working, yeah, I was actively managing the portfolio throughout the year. But back then I didn't really have a plan. So, to be honest, I was just flying by the seat of my pants, really. Um, I didn't really know when I was going to sell and what I would buy, you know, what sort of metrics I'd use to make my decision. But but since I've retired at the end of 2015, you know, my investment style and, and my plan actually has morphed over time into its, its current arrangement. <laughs> I guess I'd describe it as like several days of feverish activity <laughs> followed by <laughs> about six months of passive reflection and research. So, so what I mean is, I, like, I rebalance the portfolio twice a year, once on the first trading day in March, and then again on the the first trading day in September. So that's sort of just at the end of when most of the companies have released their financial statements. Got it. Um, and you know, much of my decisions now is made around companies based on what they report to the market. So. I'm I'm I really am a lot more comfortable now that I have a plan. Still, it's an you know it's a slowly evolving beast. It won't be the same next year as it is now. As I know, it won't be the same now as what it was a year ago. Like a year ago, I would never have thought about putting ETFs in. Good uh, and now, 
And that's sort of one of the things that's come about from the YouTube channel. People have said, you know, why don't you invest in ETFs? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do some research. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think I found some some awesome opportunities. And I have one ETF in my portfolio at the moment, which is doing really, really well. And it's called FANG, mm. F-A-N-G. And we all know what the FANG stocks are, but this, port, this, this ETF is very, very targeted. It's got... 10 stocks only, yep. uh, and they're all the big boys, you know, Alphabets and Tesla and Netflix and and those sorts of stocks. So, But, you know, look, I, I reckon every investor should be able to say how their portfolio will be structured and they should be able to clearly state their rules for how they go about buying their investments and also what rules would tell them when to sell and so that that's where i'm at I've, I've got a plan and i'm trying very hard to stick to it yeah no it's 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 spot on jp i think plan is essential in terms of you know you need a plan to execute a strategy so it's spot on in terms of you know each one has to come up with their plan which is suitable and which they're comfortable in following but the most important thing is you know stick to that plan don't give up halfway when you see you know some volatility in the market and you say hey you know i've taking the wrong approach it's always good to ride out certain storms which happens in the share market yeah, so that's, yeah well that's one of those things isn't it? i was actually uh, listening to your last podcast about um you know valuation methods and and the like and you know here i am a holder of a2 milk <laughs> yes i think all of us all three of us i guess and you know, yeah we're watching right. it go from 20 dollars down and it it's finally broken below 10 <laughs> and I'm still holding it and I'm just trusting management at the moment and I'm really hanging out for their their report to see what they've got to say. But, right. uh, you know, an awesome business for so, so long. Yep. And now nothing to do with them messing it up. Um, yeah, I think it's just, most, yeah, it's just about the noise around the market yeah. and the way the trade the trade tensions across different countries and all that stuff right so yeah. yeah that's what's really influencing this volatility in the market but hopefully as you rightly said uh, management and it'll be interesting to see what what the reports are all about but faith is there in the management to pull through this difficult time yeah we'll see we'll like, see how that I think, goes. You know, just talking about say you know having a plan you know, part of the plan has to have in it a rule which says, what are you going to do when this sort of thing happens? Mm. Um, now, you know, at the moment, A2 Milk belongs to my blue chip stocks and my rule for blue chip stocks yep. is hold them forever unless something absolutely catastrophic happens. <laughs> <laughs> and right now, I'm not sure that we've got to the catastrophic stage, but uh, anyway, we'll, we'll yep. see what they've got to say. <laughs> correct correct uh jb i think we joked about one element earlier during the conversation in bitcoins right uh i just really <laughs> yeah. interested to know what's your thought on bitcoins and gold maybe um i i recently enjoyed a very uh recent video of yours i think you spoke about the bitcoin roller coaster over the last couple yes. of days and now to yes. add to that I think Elon Musk has gone ahead and pumped in some money, I think 1.5 billion into Bitcoins. And yes. I think they're going to be, I think that's what he's at least mentioned, that in the future, for any of the Tesla products, they may be accepting Bitcoins as payments. I don't so, know how that's going to work, seriously, because so, it fluctuates oh, yeah. around so much. I, I, I personally don't know how that's going to work. But anyway, I digress. Keep going, Jude. No, no. I'm with you, Sam. <laughs> Why so that, would you buy something with a with an asset that goes up and down in value by ten or fifteen percent within a half an hour? Um, <laughs> yeah. You just know what you're paying. <laughs> I know absolutely, absolutely. So then it then comes back to this question, right? That if in case you even think about it in the future and where it is going, is there a you know particular percentage we allocate to it in terms of your portfolio? You you know like something which is not too uh what do you say prevalent in the portfolio but at the same time a minor percentage which you can leverage because of these fluctuations and make some profit out of it so any any particular percentages you think makes sense john oh look you know bitcoin is 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 a big speculation but then again like there's about 1300 stocks on the asx that i reckon are speculative so you know you can just throw a dart at any of the 
or many of the biotechs and the miners and it's a it's a it's a punt but uh, you know i just don't understand bitcoin so you know i'm not going to invest but you know it could be it could be a really unbelievably good investment but if you want to include it in your portfolio, look, I just wouldn't put any more than absolute maximum 5%. Um, mm. You know, look, if you lose 5%, like let's say it turns out to be a disaster and you lose the lot. Well, okay, you've lost 5%, but I said if you can find one stock out of the other 95% that you've got invested that, you know, does awesomely well, okay, well, that makes up for the mess you made on Bitcoin. So... But, you know, the other thing I'd probably say is that it's just so volatile that I, I wouldn't plonk it all in at one time. You know, mm. it'd be looking saying, well, look, I want to have some exposure to this thing because I I believe in it. I don't understand it, but it seems like the rest of the world wants to own it. So, you know, I want to hop on the train while it's mm. sort of heading north. But for me personally, I mean, I'm not going to invest in it. As I just, there are other opportunities, I think, that I know a bit more about Um that I'll put my money into. But if I was doing it, I'd just be sort of putting it in on maybe a monthly basis by mm-hmm. a little bit at a time, so dollar mm-hmm. cost averaging. But, again, I don't know what the brokerage costs or whatever they are on them. You know, buying small amounts might make that strategy not workable. I don't know. So, uh, but but some sort of dollar cost. Sorry. No, no. Uh, I was just going to add, you know, that dollar cost averaging method. I think there was some speculation recently that they may they may introduce uh, ETF for, like, you know, a theme based on Bitcoins. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that that could also be a, an alternative approach maybe, right, rather than going directly into the Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. So I just think, you know, I'd need to do a lot of research and just get my head around what's, what, it, what it's actually about. I think I'm getting an understanding of blockchain mm-hmm. uh, and I can see how that has merit, but I just don't get how Bitcoin comes about as a result of it. It's, um, it's still a, a slight mystery to me, but then again, you know, <laughs> I'm nearly 70. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not sure I even need to go down this path. Um, you know, look, as I said, it might turn out to be awesome and that'll be awesomely good for those people who are, are going in there but look it might die as a mm-hmm. failed experiment but you know that's sort of okay if you're only putting in that money that's not too much you know that you're saying well, look at this i might lose this um, and to a certain extent you know we've got to accept that with all of our investments really if you're going to invest in individual stocks mm-hmm. you know it could be a forge group or it could be a slater and gordon or or whatever you could lose it all you know, management just to, might totally mess up and the, the company goes bankrupt. So don't think that equities are necessarily all that much more uh, secure than Bitcoin, but you can at least pick and choose from 2,000 equities. So uh, you've got much choice, Bitcoin or maybe Ethereum, and that's about it, I guess. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Talking to the uh, the one here who really admits to knowing not anywhere near enough <laughs> to offer an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but look, as far as gold Dogecoin. is concerned, you know, look, I look, I'm happy to own gold miners, um, mm-hmm. provided their financials are good. Mm-hmm. But you know, in terms of actually buying physical gold, you know, what would I do? Let's say, okay, I've got, I want to put 10% of my portfolio into physical gold. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, do I actually buy it? Then I've got to store it, and I've got to insure it, and I've got mm-hmm. to make sure it's safe <laughs> or then I'm, I'm sure that you say, oh, you, yeah, but you get a certificate which says that it's over here in this vault. So people who advocate buying gold probably would would say, John, you don't know what you're talking about. And I go, yeah, <laughs> probably true. But look, you know, I don't mind owning gold miners. Mind you, at the moment, mm-hmm. they are doing poorly. Correct, um, correct. Because, you know, if you if you check out what happens to their share price, when gold itself goes up, they go up very quickly. The, the miners go up very quickly. And when the share price, sorry, when the price of gold falls, the share price of gold miners falls at like three times the rate. So, mm. uh, so you know, right now I own a number of gold miners as a result of my negative 2020 strategy and and they're not doing well. Having done very well for six months, Mm-hmm. They're now almost back to where I bought them at. Yeah. Oh, got Fair it. Enough. Got it. All right. So talking more specifically now 
around stocks. So you did a very interesting video, John, recently talking about hedged and unhedged ETFs. So your thoughts around that was to do a 50-50 split between hedged and unhedged funds, which could be a good way to go about investing. Historically, though, I know that you know when studies have been performed, there doesn't seem to be too much of a difference uh, between hedged and unhedged over a long period of time. So wanted to ask, do you still maintain that position, what, what you mentioned there? Look, yeah, and uh, look, you know, I wouldn't want to dispute uh, the the evidence that's sort of brought forward by academics that have done, you know, research over a long period of time. But I really do think it actually depends on where the dollar is when you actually start your investment journey. So, you know, right now, like, you know, say for someone in their late teens, early 20s or whatever wants to start investing now, the Aussie dollar is more or less in the middle of its trading range against mm-hmm. the US dollar. And so I'd agree that right now it probably doesn't make much difference because, you know, if you're looking decades into the future, then you'd expect it to sort of end up back in the middle somewhere. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, if the dollar's at an extreme level when you start and then it's at the other extreme when you finish, then the difference really could be quite significant. You know, look, I don't have I don't have the numbers handy, but mm-hmm. look, if you started investing, say around the year two thousand, you would have definitely been much better off being in hedged versus unhedged, because the Aussie dollar has risen from about fifty cents up to, I think yesterday it was at seventy eight cents. Yep, yep. You know, so, you know, right right now, if you sort of said, okay, well, I've got to get out now. Well, that that differential in that exchange rate would make a difference. Mm. But if it goes back to 50 cents when you cash your investments in, <laughs> then it doesn't make any difference at all. Correct. Um, so actually, yesterday I spoke with uh, my contact at Stock Doctor. I was, I was just ringing up about a, a reason as to why Temple and Webster's financials hadn't been updated and you know, we just sort of chatted for about half an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said that they, they've opened up a, a U.S. growth fund that they run. And so mm-hmm. you don't have to, I don't think you even have to be a member of Stock Doctor to invest in it if you don't want to. If you want to, you can just invest in it if you want. Now, he said their hedged version has returned about 16% since the inception last July. Mm-hmm. And the unhedged version with exactly the same stocks in it is sitting at about 8%. So oh, there you go. So you know, in the short term, it, it mm-hmm. is going to. I think it's going to make a difference. Yep. But as I said, in the long term, I think it just depends on where it's at when you start. Um, so you know, right now I've got uh, my money in Fang, which mm-hmm. is not not hedged, and I'm looking at trying to counterbalance that when I do my ETFs putting some into HNDQ, which is the NASDAQ 100, got it. but head, the hedged version of it. Got it. Got so it. that I've got a bit of both happening now. You know, NDQ is going to be less volatile than FANG because NDQ's got 100 stocks in it and FANG's only got 10. So, mm-hmm. so I understand that, you know, the volatility and... I think that's the important thing. As long as you understand what you're letting yourself in for, mm-hmm. then you're not going to be surprised <laughs> when Correct. something odd happens. <laughs> no, I think, but uh, but coming back to that particular percentages, John, uh, like I think, uh, so there's no fixed percentage in which you would say, you know, you take, a, say, like a 50-50 approach maybe, like as you mentioned, say if you invest the same amount in FANG and the HNDQ version, would it be the same proportion or the amount is 50-50% in in those different um, investments, or it would be a different percentage. Uh, uh, yeah, right, like right now, mm-hmm. um, I'd probably be going 50-50 mm-hmm. with the Aussie dollar sitting about 78. Mm-hmm. You know, if if it's if it just keeps powering onwards and mm-hmm. gets up into the 90s, I'd be starting to think about saying, right, if I'm going to put some more money in, yep, then I'm going to put it into uh, in the case of if it's at 90, I'd be putting it into the unhedged. Yep. So I'd be adding into the unhedged. Mm-hmm. And if it if the for whatever the the Aussie dollar tanked and got down, you know, into the mid 60s, mm-hmm. then if I was going to be putting money into 
a new investment, then I'd be looking at going into the hedged hedged variant, hedged version of it. I don't I don't think I've got a like a fixed rule about what, how I do that. Got it. Um, but uh, I, th- I think it's just something to sort of keep your keep your eye on if you're going to be invested in you know overseas companies yep. or overseas ET- based ETFs. Yeah. No, no, it's absolutely important because, as you rightly said, right, you know, the small changes and the small uh, modifications to the, that approach can have a significant impact in terms of your, you know, your returns in the future. Well, so it's yeah, always good. good yeah, to keep I was just going to say, look, in, in terms of, say, Stock Doctor, uh, yeah. we could be talking in six months' time and we could find that it's the exact reverse, hmm. that the, you know, the Aussie dollar has fallen and their, their returns are flipped around. Absolutely. Yep. I think that's a real valid point you raised there, uh, John. Coming to another, uh, you know, hot topic in terms of what we discussed right now, and you're something which you're going to be exploring soon are ETFs, right? And yes. we've seen that a lot of people talking about ETFs and there it's, you know, continually growing year on year, right? And there has been an increment in terms of investors going through the ETF channels here in Australia too. But Along with that, I think there has been an increment in terms of ETFs or thematic ETFs, right? You recently mentioned in one of your videos about, you know, the ESPO uh, ETF and I think Kathy Wood's uh, ARC uh, ETF. Why do you believe uh, that these thematics may, you know, prosper in the future? Well, look, you know, <laughs> I'm much more comfortable talking about the ESPO than ARC. Mm-hmm. Um mainly because I've, I've worked with children ever since like, computer games were developed. So I've seen how popular they are. And, you know, when you, I was teaching, kids would be always talking about the games that they were playing. And then that flows through to adulthood and they become avid users of, uh, you know, the, the technology and, uh, and they want to be playing the latest games. So, you know, maybe it's an addiction, but then you could say, like, I'm addicted to analysing stock market trends. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> Whatever, whatever the case, gaming and esports is growing in popularity, and and the computing power needed to drive the increasingly sophisticated games. I guess they would be this is going to have to increase. So there's more than that, I guess. That like the demand for high performance graphics capabilities in you know other things like uh, you know design and I guess other areas of ET that I know absolutely nothing about, but. They should ensure that the companies in, in this space actually should have a bright future. So, you know, I'm, I'm investing in uh, what I think is human nature, really, to say, look, we love doing this and we're not going to change that habit anytime soon. Mm. But, you know, in terms of ARC, on the other hand, I think it's just a bit more out there for me. That you know, It's a case of backing the the person, really, uh, mm-hmm. in this case, the, the chief investment officer. So, you know, it just seems to me that, I've watched quite a lot of, of clips of her on YouTube speaking mm-hmm. uh, and she just seems so confident in, in her and her team's assessment of what's going on and it seems that they're a bit like Elon Musk, you know, that they just see future pathways that mere mortals like me can't. So, <laughs> so I'm happy to put just a little bit into that ETF and, you know, it won't be a lot. Mm-hmm. but just enough to add a little bit of cream on the top if if they get it right. Excellent. Now, just, I guess, more about markets in general. Do you think the US will deliver the same results over the next decade, or do you think another economy would be a better performer? Uh, so we know, obviously, over the last decade, the US has had a fantastic run, but do you think that run will continue or there will be another market that will be the front runner? Well, yeah, good question. Certainly America's been the powerhouse, hasn't it? But but trying to predict what might happen in the future, I, I think, you know, one of those real challenges that, you know, someone who gets it right is going to go, see, I told you so, and then <laughs> someone who gets it wrong will go, yeah, well, it wasn't my fault. Uh, I didn't know this was going to happen or, <laughs> or whatever. But, yeah, we're, we're going to have another global pandemic at some time in the future just don't know when if history repeats itself then you know sometime in the future the u.s won't be the powerhouse that it's been you know Mm -hmm. there's there's no evidence that economies remain dominant forever and ever and ever they they just don't but then again i don't think it you know that's going to fade into oblivion like the say the roman empire or any of the other empires that have existed you know if we think now like i say the the british empire was the dominant force and now 
It's mm. this, you know, dinky little <laughs> country <laughs> sitting on the edge of Europe somewhere that, yeah, I mean, it's okay. I shouldn't bag out. But, but you know, they were a powerhouse and now they're not. So, you know, it seems to me like China will probably become the next dominant economic force. But, you know, I tend to look at it more from a, a micro than a macro term. What we we're talking about ESPO and ARC being having these macro themes, but mm. so I've got some of my money going into that, and so I'm making some sort of an assessment there. But you know, when I come back to individual companies, I just reckon you know, look at the balance sheet and look at the management team, see whether you think that they've got it takes uh, to outperform their competitors, and it shouldn't really matter which country is the dominant player. So, you know, I'm just going to remain invested in, say, FANG, for example, talking about that ETF, just because I can't see companies like Facebook or Alphabet or Amazon and the like not doing well for a long time to come. And, you know, in terms of the individual stocks in Australia, mm-hmm. um, I'll be the same thing. You know, just look at their their revenue growth, their earnings growth, look at uh, what's management done in terms of managing debt over a a number of years and if they've got a good story then they should do well regardless of who's the the dominant player i think no that's that's spot on i guess and and you know just just because you just spoke about the stocks here in australia as well right and talking in terms of our our markets and the australian markets do you think that you know the we have this proportion where a lot of the companies the dominant companies in the sx 200 or top 300 companies right are predominantly banking and mining companies so based on what we've seen in the the US markets, like a lot of uh, weightage is towards the technology stocks, which is completely different here in Australia. Yes. Um, do you think that's, that's going to be a change moving into the future where I think more technologies and, you know, biotechnology companies will come into the mix more prominently over, say, the traditional players of the banking and mining stocks? Look, I think there's certainly a growing interest in the technology and biotech space and uh, you know, my portfolio is balanced that way. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I mean, even even like I've got quite a heavy weighting in in financials, but it's not in the banks. Mm. You know, I've got these. I call them. I don't know, they're fintech stocks, probably not not the right word, but they're stocks like uh, Net Wealth and Hub Twenty Four Premium, which mm. are they have platforms which financial advisors use to manage high net wealth individuals' portfolios and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So, you know, but it's technology-based. Look, I, I just, I think the, the banks and miners are just always going to, to be there. You know, banks somehow manage to squeeze out profits no matter what, <laughs> what the government tries to do, the regulations. And, you know, if, if the, the Royal Commission was anything to go by, even when they come out with regulations or recommendations should i say that that you would have thought would make it a bit more challenging the government that just doesn't implement them so so the banks i think are going to go okay and the miners of course raw materials are going to always be valuable mm-hmm. but i guess it just depends on the cycle you know right you know right now we see battery technologies in the limelight and so <laughs> you know lithium stocks are just shooting the lights out iron ore's doing well because of the commitment to large infrastructure builds, I guess, by governments. But, um, but you know, but just, you know, say, look at the speed that we're able to develop the COVID vaccine. You just have to think that biotech's is going to be a good place to be invested in as well. But, you know, the, the problem with that, though, is that, you know, they're, they're just, you know, many, many basket case basket cases should i say on the the asx of companies that you know think they got a good story they raise capital and so on and and you know a lot of the biotech companies i think they're not basket cases so much but you know they're doing research and some of their research is going to show that what they were thinking was going to be good actually isn't and they fail so you know i'd be, be saying look look at that space but you know, wait until they've actually gone through those phase three trials, that their drugs or their processes have been approved, and you know the regulatory authorities are saying, "Yep, all good." Then I think might be the time to consider whether to invest into them. Uh, Got it. Yeah. yeah. Look, you know, I've I've had some very small investments in in um, uh, the cannabis space, believe it or not. 
Um, oh, is it? Ah, right. Uh, <laughs> right. But you know, there was a company there that was uh, was looking quite good, uh, and I think it's actually probably back higher now than what I sold it at. But a company called Botanics, which were producing a, a uh, cannabidiol-based treatment for acne and stuff like that, and I thought, well, that's interesting mm-hmm. because uh, you know there's lots of children and whatever have trouble with skins, and but they had problems with the uh, consistency of the quality of the cannabidiol they were getting. And so they, they came out with a terrible report and the, the stock tanked 50% in a day. So I sold out, but uh, it, it may, it may be going okay now. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, I think, I think tech, uh, healthcare, biotech are the places for growth but i just can't see the banks or the big miners disappearing really anytime soon got it got Mm. it fair enough okay so moving on to a slightly different topic so jude and i previously covered different portfolios based on age different scenarios on you know how uh, portfolios kind of shift towards more defensive assets as you get closer and closer to retirement so it's kind of interesting to see uh, your particular approach john where you're perhaps more weighted towards more more growth assets um <laughs> yeah, so, yeah t- tell me more about you know your thinking around that and and and, and I guess why you take this kind of approach? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I think I'm on the edge of the bell curve here. <laughs> I mean, most people of my age are probably investing in what they'd see as defensive sort of assets. But I guess it depends on what you regard as a defensive asset. You know, I just think a company that's got strong revenue growth over a number of years, it's got strong earnings growth, it's got a strong balance sheet, that makes it a defensive asset in my view. You know, it mightn't pay a very big dividend, but if its product or its service is essential or in high demand, say, mm. then you should do okay, you know. And yep. this is where, you know, Stock Doctors is no plug for Stock Doctor. I'm the, I don't have any affiliation with them. I just use it. <laughs> so <laughs> people just ask, where do you get your data from? They go, Stock Doctor. But, you know, it, it's handy. It, I can check what's happened over time and, and, you know, all sorts of interesting stuff emerges when I go and do it. So you got time for just one little snippet? Yeah, sure, John. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Uh, look, you know, I guess this is coming down to the, you know, what's a, a defensive asset. And, you know, people will probably be looking at, you know, companies with uh, largish market caps that pay a, a nice dividend and have done so historically. And, and they'd be putting quite, you know, so your banks and your, and stocks like that, Woolworths, uh, West Farmers, and, they, and they're, they're good companies. I'm not, not bagging them out. But, look, if we just focus on stocks that are currently in the ASX 200 that actually pay a dividend, so, you know, you're looking to get some sort of revenue stream, income stream. Question for you guys, would you invest in those paying the highest dividend, say a, a group of 20 of them, or would you uh, invest in a group paying the lowest dividend? <laughs> Just, just, a, just a, an off the top of the, my head question. Mm. So, you know what the answer is going to yeah, be, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, I, I would be cautious of companies paying a very high dividend because I would want to know, you know, do they still have a healthy uh, balance sheet at the end of that, and are they reinvesting some of their profits into making the com- uh, making the company more profitable in the future, or buying better machinery or equipment or whatever it is that they're doing to to increase their prospects uh, yes. later on in the future. So, yes, I, w- I would be cautious of, of ones that are paying too high of a dividend. And I would probably be on the on the safer side and, and go with a company that's paying a slightly lower dividend because I'll be more confident they'll continue to pay that dividend or they may slightly increase it over the future if they keep performing well. Well, Sam, you've passed my very first test. <laughs> you can now you, know. you can now join my investment team. No, nah. <laughs> nah, look, you know, it is it, you're absolutely right. I think that you know you just can't look at the dividend yield and say, well, that's the the be all and end all. And mm. and but yet I think some people do tend to overfocus on on yeah, but I need to get five percent because. 
I need that income to live from. So this little analysis is probably too simplistic, but over the last 12 months, the 20 stocks that paid the, sorry, the 20 stocks that were paying the highest dividend yield 12 months ago have returned negative 12%, including dividends. Mm. That's over the last 12 months, whereas the 20 stocks paying the lowest dividends 12 months ago have returned positive 7%, including dividends. Mm. So there's a 19% difference in return there over the last 12 months. So, you know, I'm not saying investing in high-yielding stocks is low risk, but there's plenty of evidence to suggest that companies that pay small dividends and then, as you said, and you hit the nail on the head, reinvest a proportion of their profits back into the business and they do it in a way which delivers that awesomely good return on invested capital, they're going to be better investments over the long term. So... Uh, you know, if you take out between the the 20 highest yield and the 20 lowest, that's 40 stocks. There's another 130 in there that are paying dividends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, somewhere in amongst there will be some really, really good investments. But you can't just be looking solely at that dividend yield as being, oh, there's a safe investment. They pay a nice dividend. Yeah. Right. Right. But I think well, that's such an interesting uh, conversation, right, uh, John, because I think, in spite of the way we think in terms of these companies reinvesting their money into their business to grow in the future, a lot of people still even today are, you know, fixated with the idea that, you know, dividends are the main thing that we really invest for, right? So it it's quite interesting to see two different points of view in that particular way, right? One who will think about it, like as you said, you make sure that they're kind of reinvesting that money into their business to grow in the future, but at the same time, if there are some people in, out there who are really dependent on those dividends, they would rather go in for, you know, those type of instruments. Yeah, look, you know, it is interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm more than happy to sell some stock to generate some income if I need to. And that sort of sounds a bit counterintuitive for some people. They mm. go, but but you're losing your capital. Uh, and yep. I'm going, well, <laughs> Not really. (laughs) uh, Yes, I've sold some of my stock. um, But if that stock has gone up, say, 10% in 12 months and I have to sell, you know, a little bit of it, Mm -hmm. then I'm still I'm still fine in my view. But uh, like everything, there's no, you know, there's no absolutely right answer to any of this. It's what feels right for somebody. And, you know, for me, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm happy to to be owning stocks that don't necessarily pay a dividend. And as I said, when I rebalance my portfolio twice a year, mm-hmm. if I need to access some some cash, then I'll just sell a little bit more or not buy quite so much of my new entrance uh, so that I've got a, a net cash delivered out of that process. So, you know, let's say, for example, uh, I needed to, uh, because of my rules, sell out, say, a quarter of a million dollars worth of stock Mm -hmm. in a couple of weeks' time. But I also know that I need to have $20,000 worth of cash to live from Mm -hmm. for the next three months or six months or whatever. Then I would only buy $230,000 worth of my new entrance into the portfolio. Got it. And that's how I generate my cash to live from. Got it. Got it. Interesting. I think that's that's that is a good view and approach to how you would go about it, right? That's that's interesting to hear. And you yeah, know, that's my again, way. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no advice for anyone else to do it that way. But that's, that's what I do. No, but it's always good. It's as I said, it's always good to get different views, different perspectives as to how you do things, right? Because I think through experience is the only way you kind of learn how to go about all of these things. So. Absolutely. absolutely correct absolutely correct you you you're right in your own particular way and your your own view so so let's move on to micro investing apps so they provide new investors and even experienced investors a different kind of channel to invest in so you did a video john on the Comsat pocket app raise and spaceship and you mentioned you would explore investing in spaceship into the future but just with the way Spaceship is structured, an individual is not going to be owning the underlying assets uh, or the shares. But yeah, the way it's done, the funds kind of owning the shares. So what are the risks that you see in this kind of investment? So unlike a chest-linked asset, uh, in the case the fund 
offers this uh, closes this offering what happens with the invested money and also the offering has been around since 2018 it hasn't really seen a downturn except for obviously the crash in march and then it rebounded quite quickly do you think that this will still continue uh, and how do you personally invest in micro investing apps in your portfolio well at the moment i actually don't have any in the the portfolio look you know i think there's always risk in any investment so you know my advice if you for want of a better way of putting it is to spread that risk around you know don't put all your money into just one idea or into just one fund it's uh, you know it is true in the case of a managed fund that the funds owns the shares and it's sort of on my behalf i guess but that's really i think the same with any etf or or an industry super fund for example like i was with ngs super which was the non-government teachers uh, superannuation scheme in south australia so that was before i set up my SMSF. So I entrusted them with my contributions and I never have got a statement actually saying <laughs> how many shares I owned of BHP or, you know, what percentage of some commercial property that they'd invested in was mine. I, I just had to trust that the regulations in Australia would serve me well, I guess. So, you know, if I put my money into spaceships operation, I'm, I'm trusting that that oversight of that will be re- robust enough to ensure that what happened with my retail superannuation fund doesn't happen again. Yeah, but that, you know, having said all that, you know, I have had a few comments on my channel from viewers who had their balances in managed funds frozen mm-hmm. for quite a time. And in one case, it's been frozen since 2007. So, <laughs> you know, that's probably, you know, at the time of the GFC. So that managed fund, for whatever reason, got themselves into an awful pickle. Mm-hmm. And that those funds are now locked away, I guess, in some massive court case somewhere, I don't know. It's certainly pretty scary and worth keeping in mind. But, you know, as far as Spaceship Voyager is concerned, it's certainly been a good time for them to be invested in the market, particularly their universe option, which would, I think, be viewed as being a lot more risky and possibly volatile than their origin option. But yeah, look, you know, putting your money into a managed fund does come with its own inherent risks. And that's why, you know, don't, you know, so many, there's so many examples of of people putting all their money into one idea. And then we hear that that one idea blew up. Mm. um, And, you know, they lost everything, which is a shame, absolute shame. So, you know, I think all the apps do have their place, particularly for young investors taking on board the idea that, well, okay, Spaceship Voyage is a managed fund and it comes with its own inherent risks. Mm-hmm. You can get in, put the money in there at no cost. So you're taking away that 2% brokerage. But, I mean, you know, the, the main reason I'm thinking about that one is uh, of going into Spaceship Universe in particular is that their their concept is investing in what where they think the world is going, which... When I first read it, I'm thinking, what are you talking about? What do you mean? I'm investing in companies where the world is going. It made, uh, then, you know, once I started listening to Kathy Wood with her ARK investor, ah, oh, right, okay, so you're looking at the next big things, uh, the big sectors, I guess, that are going to be influencing our everyday life. And uh, But that's, you know, in that disruptive innovation speculative area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me... If, if I choose to go down the spaceship path or ARC for that matter, now that I've mm-hmm. got my self-wealth account set up, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it won't be any more than 3% of my portfolio as a starting position. So got it. I've I sort of, over time, I've talked about, you know, my starting positions are never going to be any more than 3%, which gives me about 30, 35 stocks that I'm going to be holding. Mm-hmm. And some of the good ones will eventually become way more than 3%. Got it. And some of the underperformers will become, you know, one and a half percent. So, you know, if I have a dudder, it'll mm-hmm. go from three percent to one and a half. And if I have a, an absolute ripper like Fisher and Pykel, well, it will go, if I hadn't been silly enough to sell it along the way, <laughs> <laughs> it would have gone from three percent to maybe 15 percent. And so, you know, got to weigh that up. Can't right. go back and change history. I sold out of it when I should have believed in it 
but mm-hmm. the profits were there and they looked attractive and I thought, what if it falls? And yeah, <laughs> I, don't <think laughs> I, I don't think there's no right answer is there. You just do what you, you think's right. But for me, the, you know, the bulk of my portfolio will still be my blue chips, which I'm hanging on to until absolutely something absolutely catastrophic happens to one of them or whatever, in which yep. case I'll exit. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the rest will be my negative 2020 basket of stocks. And then I've got some other little remnants, which uh, uh, I've assessed as being, yep, I like their story. They don't quite fit the negative 2020, mm-hmm. uh, but they're in the portfolio already. And I'm going to trust that they do OK going forwards. Perfect. Perfect. I think that's that's a sound strategy to follow, JP. Well, you know, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Uh, JP, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. You know, we would really love to have you back on the podcast when you, you know, again, you go through this cycle all the time and you reevaluate your public portfolios. I think now in Feb for the Feb reporting season, where we'll go through that process again. You know, we definitely would like to prick your brain on what are some of the decisions you'll be making when it comes to rebalancing those portfolios. And, uh, you know, to provide such an important lesson to the ris- to the listeners when it comes to an important aspect where it is rebalancing and reevaluating portfolios periodically. Look, you know, Jude, Sam, <laughs> thanks so much for inviting me. Look, it's been great chatting. It's uh, probably gone on quite a, quite a while, but you know, I just love talking <laughs> about the stock market. And, you know, we've certainly covered some ground here and we probably could have gone into a lot more detail on so many things. So, you know, I'd love to come back and share some of my thoughts again, you know, just my thoughts. But I think it's a, an important part of learning about investing is to to talk about what you're doing with other people and hear what they they say and you know having having you guys you know know, pick away a bit at some of what i've got to say would be awesome i mean you know just as the on my channel i'm happy to talk in specific terms rather than general terms about my decisions and also you know happy to hear what you think about what i'm doing because again you know everything investing is what do you think not not necessarily done in absolute truths but more in just opinions so thanks again it's been a great pleasure having a chat with you thanks very much john it's been an absolute pleasure for those listening out there if you haven't checked out john's youtube channel please do so just search for invest for the future into the search bar and his videos will pop up and guys just as always with our website it's oz-investing.com spelled oz-investing and consider joining our email list also check us out on social media there are links to our social pages on our website and if you'd like to contact us please do so send us an email it's ozinvesting2020 at gmail.com or through the contact section on our website so with all that said and done i hope you enjoy the rest of your day and we'll catch you in the next episode see you later